This week on Grubstakers, we're talking about Oprah Winfrey. Hear the inspiring true story of how the queen of daytime television made her rags-to-riches tale come true, and how that allowed her to open the doors for such reputable characters as Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, and the people who wrote the book The Secret. All that and more, coming up on Grubstakers. Because of my success in the private sector, I had the chance to run America's largest city for 12 years. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. And that's just, that's just not true. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. Hey, welcome to Grubstakers. Um, Sean McCarthy here with my friends as always. Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. Yogi Powell. And uh, thank you for tuning in. I think we got a bit of a different episode this week in, in the sense that our first five episodes are about just complete human bags of trash. Um, whereas this episode, it's about not quite as much. Not a bag of trash, maybe uh, maybe a loose leaf bag of uh, recyclables, I think is what we're dealing with today. Right. <laughs> um, and, and of course, we're talking about Oprah Winfrey. Uh, she may be known to uh, most of you as the judge from the B-movie. That's right. But, um, <laughs> but uh, Oprah Winfrey is a, a billionaire. According to Forbes, she is worth uh, $2.7 billion as of March 2018. Um, and uh, she's almost entirely self-made, I would say. Whereas, you know, in our first few episodes, we talked about uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg getting a huge loan from his parents. Jeff Bezos gets 200000 from his parents. You know, so a lot of so-called self-made billionaires are, are not self-made. But um, Oprah is, uh, she grew up very poor. Um, I think her grandmother was dressing her in like a potato sack dress. That's that right, yeah. Get made fun of for. And so... So uh, she gets a literal rags to riches right she's a literal rags to riches story so you can't really dispute that and i think like this will be a different episode but it'll be interesting because the central premise when we started this podcast is uh we are testing the hypothesis that there is no such thing as a good billionaire because if you're just having a billion dollars you are hoarding money you are a hoarder there are thousands of social problems you could fix tomorrow by just downsizing your lifestyle a little bit instead of just letting your money sit in a checking account. So, One of the things you could fix is how Sean says the word tomorrow. He says (laughs) tomorrow, even though he's not Canadian. And I mean, billionaires, you got to work on this because I'm tired of hearing it. (laughs) But the point is, you know, Oprah doesn't have like um, her slave sweatshops like Jeff Bezos and uh, she hasn't gotten the uh, nation addicted to heroin like the Sackler family. She just, you know, showed up in living rooms and cut herself a good production deal and uh, maybe made a lot of people happy while potentially peddling some uh, questionable products along the way. Definitely. She got us addicted to positive thoughts and self-empowerment. Andy, move your mic closer. Thanks, She got us addicted to powerful thoughts and self-empowerment. Yeah, and also she made sure to prop up uh, literal uh, capitalistic pundits, literal people that are like, hey... I'm a con man. Would you let me have a TV show? Yeah, why not? Why not? That, that, was, a, that was Dr. Oz's original slogan, <laughs> but they thought it was too long. <laughs> yeah. She, yeah, she created all these demi-hucksters right. that like, went out and peddled in other areas of 
like medicine, right? Or personal finance, you know, <laughs> Doctor Phil. Yeah, his his original slogan was, uh, "You can't prove I fucked my patient." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, going back to her bio, so she grew up in Mississippi mm-hmm. and then split split time in Tennessee with her father. The, the right. Her her Oprah's mother had Oprah at sixteen. Their their parents her parents separated, um, and in Tennessee, her stepmom got her in beauty pageants, and she won Tennessee's Miss Teen Miss Black Teen Tennessee. That's what she won. It was very specific. It was uh, racially segregated beauty pageants because obviously you can't have one beautiful person. <laughs> that's just any race. They go, no, that's crazy. You have to have one white and one black, obviously. It was originally called uh, Miss Black Jailbait, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> Who won this year? Uh. <laughs> Steven, you keep asking that. We don't know. Just imagine the racist. He's like, we have to segregate our objectification of teenagers. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, and Oprah was born to a, to a single mother. Um, and her mother uh, worked as a maid. Uh, she had to work, Her mother had to work very long hours. Um, so, you know, as a result of that, Oprah was, um, I guess I want to say, neglected uh, as a child by her mother uh, because of economic circumstances, really, yeah. you know. Uh, but she spent a lot of time with her grandmother as well, uh, who she learned a lot of her values from. And, uh, you know... Just so the audience knows, like, what's what do you think the combined total episodes of the Oprah show we have actually watched between all of us is? I don't know, maybe thirty well, percent of like an episode, if that. Right? Are you I, sure? Because I mean, it, growing up, it was like an it was a cultural like, icon, right? It was just on in the background a lot. Yeah. I mean, so, that's the thing. I like, I want to say ten episodes. Right. <sighs> I feel like I'm probably I've gotten through two or but those three. Those episodes are long. This is like an hour, two hour long episodes. Right. Yeah, I've never seen an episode from beginning to end. I haven't even seen the whole Chappelle interview. Okay, mm-hmm. but cumulatively, though, we've probably seen you know somewhere on the order of a hundred episodes. I guess. I mean, like, I don't know if I have. I don't. I didn't watch that much Oprah. All right. Well, anyways, so just so you know, is <laughs> I saw that clip. You couldn't stop watching that clip. Uh, I busted uh, in on Sean in the bathroom. He was just watching that clip, <laughs> vigorously stroking his chin. Um, but so Oprah grew up in poverty, um, and uh, uh, she didn't have an easy life, you know. Um, I believe, and this is, of course, something she's talked about extensively, is she was uh, molested as a child uh, by her cousin, her uncle, and a family friend, starting when she was around nine years old. And so just like the cumulative effect of, you know, all that poverty and all that abuse, it it is something that makes Oprah's story, like, all the more inspiring. And there's a... um, it's inspiring, but there is kind of a dark underside to it that I think about, and I was thinking about today when we were talking about doing this episode, because it's like, you know, there's 40 mu- million-some Americans who had a similar life experience, at least in terms of poverty, to Oprah today. There's yeah. 40-some million, and, and, but there's only one Oprah. Right. So, so what you're saying is in about 20 years, we're going to have 40 million Oprahs. <laughs> No, what he's saying is that those people have negative 
Like thoughts that are that's right. That's right. They're, they're, they don't know the secret. The they magnetic waves from their head aren't attracting uh, <laughs> positive business opportunities. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. A, a positive what? thought mm-hmm. is a hundred times more powerful than a negative thought. That's, that's been proved in science. Right. But um, but so you know, uh, nobody would dispute that Oprah had a very hard life, and she. Built this from the ground up. I don't think she had a very hard life. All right, Andy, shut up. Real quick, though, you know, I I didn't know that Oprah was uh, sexually abused as a kid. uh, And uh, then, like, I just started looking up. uh, At that point, I was mad at myself for not knowing that because of how uh, public everything from the Me Too movement is to how many celebrities are are speaking out against their uh, abuses and crimes against them. And then I just started looking up random uh, female black actresses and celebrities, and most of the ones I looked up had been abused. Mary J. Blige, Monique, Gabrielle Union, Queen Latifah. It was crazy how long it took me before I got to a, a black celebrity female that wasn't abused as a child. Halle Berry was the first one I found. And that's crazy to think about. Taraji P. Henson, uh, uh, Viola Davis, there's so many black female actresses that were abused. And it made me mad at how... Um, how much they lie. <laughs> yes, that's what I was very mad about, Shot. I mean, is, is it not crazy? I mean, think about how many, like... Uh, Did you do a control against, like, you know, white and Asian actresses to see... Sure. I watched this movie Eyes Wide Shut, and I think it talks a bit about <laughs> maybe why that happens. I've never seen that movie. It's a good movie. Because they speak out against the power. Um, but so Oprah... They don't it, know the password. The second password. There is no second password. It's a secret. Uh, Sean and I watched Eyes Wide Shut the other day. Gotcha. You have to like... That's that's why he got caught is because he wasn't in on his vision board. He didn't put the second <laughs> password. <laughs> But he did uh, put a mask. <laughs> um, okay, so Oprah has a hard life, but uh, you know her father's a, a positive int- influence, uh, um, and her grandmother as well encourages her, and um, she's able to win a scholarship um, to go to a college in uh, at Tennessee State University. She gets a, a full scholarship there, um, and she studies communications. And uh, eventually, she starts working in local media. She has to be the richest, world's richest person with a communications degree. Um, she's uh, she becomes the first uh, black female news anchor at a Nashville station in I think uh, 1975 or six or so. Um, <clears throat> and then eventually, she becomes a, a co-host of a, a talk show, People Are Talking, in 1978. Um, and then she kind of builds her media career from there. She's known for her, uh, the, the style she would um, refine over the years, which is her very intimate, conversational, but also confessional um, television appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something a lot of people have remarked on. Uh, what built Oprah's brand uh, when she launched her show, especially, is that she uh, really um, gets emotional and gets involved and right. doesn't have the more traditional journalistic distance that you see from you know phil donahue who she went on to crush (laughs) um but in 83 she relocates to chicago and she takes over a a low-rated talk show am chicago and then uh that would eventually be relaunched as the oprah winfrey show and this is where her her money really starts um 
Yeah, and, and we can talk a bit about just how she got to a billion dollars in uh, in media entertainment if we don't have any other biographical details that are worth noting. Well, I remember reading that she had some career stumbles along the way, even after she she left her home state. She failed on the way to success. <laughs> she had some she she failed, but she reinterpreted it as a success. Ooh. Yeah. You talking about when she got fired? Yeah, then she got mm-hmm. she got fired and then she, she got, got like, demoted. demoted. Yeah, yeah, she got demoted to the morning uh headline news show basically, which was, I think was before the Oprah Winfrey show. That's that's what she took over, I believe. They're like Oprah, you can't give away cars on the news. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, "Well, I'll start a show where I can give away cars." Uh the station, needless to say, ended up losing over two million dollars from right. the car giveaways. What if she like <laughs> she was giving away pentos at first? <laughs> it was a real disaster. There were a lot of legal problems. Um, but yeah, I mean, she uh, had kind of a back and forth thing. Um, uh, she had some career stumbles along the way. Uh, I'm sure. The Oprah cult has documented it better than we ever could. Um, But eventually, uh, in 84, she launches um, uh, her AM Chicago show, which takes over, which becomes the Oprah Winfrey show. And uh, this just really, uh, Phil Donahue was the main ratings guy in Chicago and nationally at the time. And Oprah just destroys him. You know, to the point where nobody even knows who Phil Donahue is anymore. But JJ is painting. <laughs> he just couldn't compete with that content. Can't compete with that. Can't beat that. That's that Oprah magic. I yeah. love bread. I'll get the grainiest, nuttiest seed bread. And my favorite bread. Unbelievable. I love <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, and and so and it should be noted, um, the original Oprah show was not what essentially everyone in this room grew up watching the the daytime talk show for women. The original Oprah show was much more like the Der- Jerry Springer show, where we were watching some clips earlier. She'd have you know child preachers on to to fight with her heathen audience, and she'd have yeah, she had neo Nazis like on. She would like bring on this child preacher who did like fire and brimstone shit. And clearly the the kid was just stuck like in front of a, a mega church by his dad right, right. as a novelty. Uh, it, it pretty almost cut and dry child abuse, just like you know um, Joe Jackson shit. And so they bring the kid on, and instead of exposing the dad, they just have the audience grill the kid on how much he knows about the Bible. Or, like, what he's saying. So they're just, like, basically they're taking a kid who's being abused by his dad and then just abusing him with the audience for national TV. Yeah. It, it was those bold choices that set her up. <laughs> yeah, really, that's right. Yeah. It's juicy kind of TV. I mean, it's, it's the precursor to the most exploited TV reality TV. Like, it's, like, this is the beginning of putting... Um, toddlers and tiaras. Yeah, tell every all of it. All, basically, damage people for your entertainment on television starts with Oprah asking a child preacher, "Why are you so shitty?" <laughs> like it's like it's crazy. But the thing about Oprah that I think all of us have learned through our research is that. You know, she directly might not be uh, malicious. By our our research, Yogi means her Wikipedia article. That's right. Mm -hmm. Uh, She directly might not seem malicious, but once she got enough money, 
the people she uh, in charge of she the people that she put in charge uh, were morally corrupt and fucked up a whole bunch of shit. Hmm. That chick who's the fucking uh, went on Doctor Phil, the Catch Me Outside bitch. She 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 fucking is popular, but it was not Oprah directly. But that's Doctor Phil, and that's so that's Oprah. It's what Oprah represents to the narrative. You know, like I was saying earlier about the 40 million poor people won Oprah. It's the idea that, you know, either through the secret or positive visualization or just working 100 hours like Elon Musk wants you to do or something. It's just telling people that, like, in this society, if you're not successful, it's your fault. Right. Because Oprah can do it. So why can't you do it? Why can't you be a billionaire? And of course, yeah, why can't you? Huh? Negative thoughts. What's wrong <laughs> with you? Negative huh? thoughts. Gonna put out a, a self hate heckler tape. It's just me yelling at you about why you're not a billionaire. Yeah. Oh, you can't make no money, huh? You can't be Oprah. <laughs> Maybe we sh- should we talk about her lieutenants who got their start? Well, on her uh, show. Yeah. First, I do want to just kind of discuss how she actually got rich because yeah, it is it is an interesting story. So basically. Um, in uh, 85, um, she, or sorry, in 84, she's making, uh, this is according to a Forbes profile in 95, um, but in 1984, she's uh, hosting the AM Chicago. She's making 230 k a year with like a $30,000 raise every year, and she actually makes the decision to fire her agent because she thinks she's being underpaid. Uh, she, she gets a new agent, um, and he actually negotiates a really good deal for her. Um, basically... Uh, the, this agent um, goes around and starts trying to um, uh, peddle her show for syndication. Um, so ABC agrees uh, to uh, let the her agent try and um, distribute the show. And then she gets this big break because she stars in the color purple. So when her show goes back on in 86, she's like a Hollywood celebrity. She's right. well known because of the color purple. And so um, it, it has like a big rating spike. And uh, then uh, her agent um, returns to the bargaining table and essentially gets ownership um, for Oprah of the program. So she already um, owns the, or so she, in 86, she owns the Oprah show and starts to get a heavy cut of syndication. And then it just kind of like goes on like that, where she became. You know what that that buys a lot of? (laughs) Love bread. Then I love bread. Hog wall crazy. Uh, but yeah, like, uh, so essentially I think, um, and this is going back to 95, she set up her own uh, production company, Harpo Productions, which is Oprah backwards. Um, but so Harpo Productions, uh, starts to produce the show and they take, uh, basically 70% eventually they would, uh, by 95, they were taking 70% of all the revenue from the Oprah show. Um, because, you know, she negotiated a good deal for herself and she was in on the ground floor of syndication and she owns her show. So just as one example, in 94, um, the Oprah show took it. This is according to Forbes, uh, the profile that I mentioned. The Oprah show took in 196 million in gross revenue. Her agent gets a 10 percent cut. So about 10 million for the year. And then um, Winfrey personally uh, earns uh, 74 million pre-tax in uh, 1994. So essentially, uh, because she owns uh, the show and because she has the majority share, her co- production company has a majority share of distribution rights. She's making you know 70 some million a year 
from the 90s up through 2011 when the show ended. Wow. You know, um, like... That's nuts. 70 million a year just for the show ownership, huh? Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Because, like, once you own the distribution, obviously that's where all the money yeah, is. Yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, no, uh, uh, credit to her. She was smart, and she hired a, a good agent to... Uh, not allow her to get fucked over by show business, and she leveraged her popularity uh, with the confessional show that we were right. talking about. So yeah, like guys, so- I'm pro capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, yeah, that's like uh, that's that's the thing with the Oprah story is again, as, as we've been mentioning, it's she kind of buys into this this narrative about herself, where it's like she was very smart, but she was also incredibly lucky. The Oprah story is not the typical story of American capitalism. Um, But because, you know, she's seen in millions of living rooms, I think her peak audience was something like 13 million a day in the 90s. Um, She's this massive success that's in their living rooms who came from nothing, and she shows them every day that, like, oh, if Oprah can do it, I can do it too, and it's my fault, and I should blow my brains out after the financial crisis. And what Sean's saying is that Oprah-inspiring women around the country is what caused the modern-day feminism movement and Oprah's to blame for all of the liberal issues we're dealing with right now. Right, Sean? I, I think you're paraphrasing, <laughs> but you're getting at the spirit of what I'm saying. <laughs> it, it's it's crazy because she, um, she's the most philanthropic black female from the United States. She's, the, uh, I think, either the only except, black female except billionaire. Except for the lady who ran the Underground Railroad. <laughs> Harriet Tubman. <laughs> yeah, in my head, I was like, I was like, did you forget Harriet Tubman? <laughs> I was like, could you not remember more than one black female name at a time? Sometimes you just got to get the thing in the microphone before you remember the name. <laughs> you know, like the, except for the man who freed the slaves, President Lincoln. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, she's uh, uh, been relatively philanthropic, but it should be noted. She still has $2.7 billion, so it's like, how philanthropic are you if you're still sitting on multiple billion dollars? Right, right. It's just gathering interest in a checking account while people are starving to death. So, with the money she made from the show... Could be a savings account. <laughs> With the money she made from the show, was that from also the book club money and also the like favorite things type of thing? Right. Well, that started coming in later. Mm. But um, yeah, like I mean, later she signed a deal with um, I think XM Satellite Radio, and uh, of mm. course she was a co-founder of the Oxygen Network. Um, I think in '98 that launched. Um, it. She didn't actually become hit the $1 billion mark until relatively recently. Right. Oh, interesting. And as of the year 2000, she was worth $800 million. And then from uh, 800 uh, and again, this is according to Forbes, so from $800 million in 2000 to $2.7 billion today. Wow. It was really like, you know, she started with the, um, the production, the syndication rights to her show, and taking a majority share of syndication revenue. And then from there, she kind of built her whole media empire. Like, I think Harpo... Um, I believe, yeah, through her Harpo Productions, she still has a hand in Dr. Phil, Rachel Ray, Dr. Oz show, you know, her magazine O, and then the satellite radio station we mentioned, uh, which might have been shut down. I actually yeah, don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. But she got a bit of money for that. But the point is, you know, um, and, and we'll talk about Dr. Phil uh, and Dr. Oz a little bit later. And Suze. Yeah. But essentially, you she's... For, you forgot her magazine. Yeah, I, I, sorry, I mentioned the O magazine. Oh, okay. O Magazine uh, was estimated to have generated, I think, a billion in revenue between 2000 and 2015. You know what I say when I uh, 
when I see that in the newsstands? What's that? Oh, magazine. <laughs> uh, great contributions today, Andy. He's Andy, lying Andy's, on the floor from a hangover. Andy's lying on the floor and looks like he's doing a podcast from a hammock. Like, he looks like... <laughs> He could, and I'm hunching over because the headphone thing has to be closer to you guys. Yogi's mad because he's jealous. <laughs> yes, I'm mad because I'm jealous, Andy. You're 100% correct. I'm seething with jealousy right now. If only I could be lying down and playing drops. Imagine being too lazy to even sit for a podcast. <laughs> I have the, uh, I'm the only one who doesn't get a chair with a backdrop. What? You could sit on the couch. The first three it's, it's a three-person couch. Yeah, yeah but I'm fat. Yeah, well, okay, right. you don't get a chair with a backdrop, but you know Oprah wore a potato sack as a dress yeah, for many Andy. years of her yeah. life. I mean, yeah, that's hard, but it was savagely I'm sure molested. her chairs had, you know, a back to them. I'm going to argue that there's a good chance they didn't, Andy. <laughs> if they got potato sack dresses, I don't think the chairs got backs. You know what? Agree to disagree. All right, man. Um, uh but yeah, um, and, and so we've mentioned, you know, she made this money and then she built her media empire with that. And like uh, her money just kind of doubles and expands um, from there. And I think, you know, Thomas Piketty uh, kind of showed pretty convincingly that capital accumulates uh, at a what a rate averaging three times as fast as the economy as a whole. So once you have, you know, 800 million in 2000, it's pretty easy to make it into 2.7 billion, mm-hmm. you know, because you can either just stick it in like an equities traded fund and get seven to 10% a year, or you can just invest in all these other people like Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, etc. O Magazine. She bought a 10% share of Weight Watchers in 2015 and recently sold some of her stake for, I think, $110 million. And that's, you know, she more than doubled uh, her initial investment. I think she spent something like $42 million, and then she sold some of that uh, for uh, $110 million. So, you know, capital, um, it accumulates and it replicates itself. So once you get enough $100 million, you're pretty well set in our system. You know, Sean, when I was at the uh, grocery store earlier, mm-hmm. I was looking at the uh, rack of uh, newspapers and stuff, and I went, oh, a magazine. It only works if you're lying down when you say it. I just want to make sure we kept the first one in. <laughs> if I keep doing callbacks to it, you can't cut it out. Right. Yeah, no. You think I'm ashamed of that. That's <laughs> like, it's going to be Andy's only contribution today. He's doing drops. He, I like the drop work he yeah, did Yeah, I guess he did a little bit of drops. He did some bread, some vajay. Seed bread, because oh. I love Great. Fantastic. <laughs> Just his his two drops. Bread. Just hopefully, I alter- have bread every day. <laughs> he can't like play them back to back because he didn't download them. He's just streaming the drops. Do oh, have- he's just hitting play just each time. Bask yes. in it. I don't have to have bread anymore during the day because I have. Um. But so, yes, I think uh, we've hopefully given a a basic overline of just how Oprah got so rich. Um, And I think we we should discuss, as we've mentioned at the top, we don't think Oprah's a horrible person. She's done a lot of good. And like researching this, I remember when... That was very brave of Sean to say, by the way, (laughs) considering that he's talking about a woman. (laughs) Sean has uh, only praised three women in his life. Uh, first one, obviously, the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. The second one being his own mother. Mm-hmm. 
and now Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey. Uh, my girlfriend listens to this show, and she's good too. <laughs> wow, guys, a breakthrough. <laughs> you know, I, I, I would love to talk about uh, her uh, long-term uh, boyfriend, uh, Stedman. Uh, people don't know this. Middle name won't sign a prenup. That's that's his middle name. <laughs> I see no reason for them to be married outside the fact that I don't think Stedman's going to sign a prenup. And be honest, Stedman looks like he's melting as a human being. Like he does not look good, and uh, he's got like a, a few million dollars to his name as well. But Oprah's best friend Gail, Gail King, I believe is her name. Uh, there's just like a supposed like like love triangle between Stedman, Gale, and Oprah. And it's not Stedman with Gale. It's Gale and Oprah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh yeah, Stedman's getting cucked always. Yeah, That's Stedman happening. likes to watch. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, Andy. Did you know that Forbes estimates Stedman makes the most money per single pump of any man in America? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like, uh, so the other thing is there is rumors that Oprah is gay with her best friend Gail King. Um... <laughs> Uh, which are gleefully spread by both Alex Jones and Gavin McInnes and among others. While they're um, spooning in bed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, well, Gavin McInnes is uh, having sex with a proud boy. He spreads rumors of um, <clears throat> this nature. But Oprah has uh, denied them. He it, spreads full ropes of rumors <laughs> all over those proud boys. Well, he's uh, beating the shit out of an impressionable child who can't name cereals fast enough. He's saying that Gail King and Oprah are lesbians together. Um, but Oprah has denied this and said that she's been very public about her life as far as, as we've mentioned, you know, her history of sexual uh, being sexually abused and, and all, uh, she had a miscarriage at a young age. So you think she could be a lesbian? You think she? Should be I don't married? like. I don't think she's a lesbian. I think her quote was accurate, where she was like, "I would tell you if I was a lesbian." Um, her and Gail are just good friends. But again, I have no fucking idea. You know, uh, Steve and I were watching uh, an Oprah video, and it showed former boyfriends of Oprah. And uh, I don't know what you guys guess, but one of her boyfriends gets two thumbs up from me. Uh, Roger Ebert was one of her former lovers. Right. He's, he's a, she credits him with uh, giving her the idea to go nationally syndicated. Oh, really? When she was that. in Chicago, yeah. Because hmm. Ebert was syndicated at the time, and he gave her the idea, and actually at the time estimated she would make 40 times more money than him. And uh, that was a bit of an underestimate. But, you know, he also estimated that he would uh, live 10 more years after (laughs) he got the surgery. He also estimated, I'll always have this jaw. Um, We're really giving it to that dead guy, right? (laughs) I give him uh, two thumbs down (laughs) under. He's in hell. (laughs) But uh, sorry, do we have a bit of the uh, the Oprah Me Too speech? Maybe we'll just show you like thirty seconds I think it's of this. Protected. Oh. I mean, there's this nine minute one. We don't want that. Yeah. I, I mean, look, uh, you guys can listen to it, and you probably heard what she said from the media reports. But basically, or go read it. We don't care. Yeah. It's, it, it, she gave a speech. It was very inspiring about Me Too, and it talked about her own experiences with sexual abuse and how you know the time's up and. You know, all these the men like Harvey Weinstein are being exposed, and that's a good thing, and, and we all agree that's a good thing. But um, essentially, this fueled a lot of talk of her running for president, um, which she has denied, but she did sell that Weight Watchers stuff, so maybe she's trying to fund something. We don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, what I wanted to talk about <laughs> is, like, doing the research, uh, there were 
criticisms of her from the left, uh, just on the idea of a billionaire running for president in the first place. But um, you dropped a beautiful gem there, though. You think that Weight Watchers money could go for a campaign? I mean, it's a hundred million. That's amount you'd need to run a campaign like that, right? Yeah. I mean, I. If I were to guess, I'm going to say Oprah is not going to run for for president. But I mean, she, she doesn't. She might jog. She doesn't need as much uh, uh, charisma compensation as, say, Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> <laughs> she has a better money multiplier than that guy does. Yeah, she's she's like an inverse Michael Bloomberg, where he has to like just pour money into <laughs> his campaigns because he has no charisma. Right. Oprah made her money. Because she is an embodiment of charisma. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But um, what I wanted to get to from that um, is uh, uh, a couple things. Is Nicole Ashoff uh, coined the term spiritual capitalism to, to describe o- Oprah's doctrine. It's from her and, book, The New Prophets of Capital. Right. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But um, I also wanted to say just um, the other leftist criticism of her was... Um, the Iraq War, and then that's actually worth looking at a little bit um, because essentially, wait, she did that. Well, um, no, you get a war, you get a war, you get a war. Um, I think, Oprah- guys, if we visualize <laughs> weapons of mass destruction, okay, I got a board up here. They'll be there when we get there. That's right. Oh yeah, I guess. Uh, Paul Bremer didn't put rule of law on his vision board for <laughs> Baghdad in 2003. George W. Bush and I'm a fake doctor, MD. I think we got, I think we got it, guys. I think we're here. If we visualize a stable state after you put half the professional class out of a job, <laughs> oh, yeah. okay, and uh-huh. disband the military, everyone look under your <laughs> your seats. <laughs> While I exit the building. <laughs> Did you know that Dr. Oz said a green coffee extract can actually stop the ethnic cleansing of Sunnis in Baghdad <laughs> neighborhoods? Um, but so anyways, um, Oprah's role in the Iraq war is um, obvious. Like, I think it's complicated, but essentially she did a show not long after 9-11 called Is War the Only Option? Um, and this was actually, I think, a, a rather brave critique of the res- the military response to 9-11. And she has said that she received more hate mail for that than anything else. You know, people wow. telling her to go back to Africa and this kind of shit. So I think she was um, kind of tempered by that response. Um, but she did actually a series of shows leading up to the Iraq War, one of which... Um, she essentially shut down an audience member who was questioning the idea that there were WMDs there, which should be noted, and she had some pro-war people on to, to support WMDs. But basically all of the other subsequent shows she did were very skeptical of the idea of the Iraq War. And, you know, she had Thomas Friedman, of all people, on to be like, mm, well, if we had do the war, we should do it with the international community or whatever. <laughs> so, again, like, she wasn't... She was uh, uh, an Iraq war opponent. Thomas Friedman, by the way, should be noted. Recent proponent of uh, defeating Assad by arming ISIS. <laughs> but uh, she was an opponent at the time when most of mass media was right. uniformly yes, yes. pro- so that's- Exactly. That's where she deserves. It's 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 mixed because she deserves credit for. And I think Michael Moore actually at the time was calling for her to run for president because at, at one show leading up, he she showed um, extended clips from his show Bowling for Columbine, outlining U.S. military interventions in other uh, countries as sort of an explanation for why some countries might dislike the U.S. And uh, so she was. 
generally skeptical of the Iraq war, but there's there's a question of, you know, maybe she could have done more, maybe she couldn't have, but she actually did talk with Phil Donahue about that, about, you know, how to do these kinds of criticisms without people attacking you and questioning your, your patriotism. And, of course, you know, the, the response she got and all the go-back-to-Africa stuff was, I, I'm sure, very... Uh, influential in her not being too vocally critical of the war, but maybe being a bit publicly skeptical, which she does deserve credit for. Well, this is the issue with Oprah, though. She she really walks a tightrope kind of perfectly. Right. And the issue with, you know, not the issue, but the thing about our podcast is we really talk about, uh, you know, how billionaires fuck up a whole bunch. But with Oprah, it's like, oh, she did punch that baby, but she hugged that homeless guy. Like, it's like right. she's always kind of on both sides, which... You know, incidentally, in this day and age, is what a politician does more than ever before, I think, to a certain extent. But with Oprah, I think the problem is is that she is such a bastion of truth and goodness and wholesomeness, almost like the mom corporation from Futurama. Right. That, like, it really does blur the lines because it's like you can't play both sides and then only look be looked at as a good entity. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is, like, Essentially, her audience, for the most part, is suburban, uh, semi-well-to-do white women who are more conservative than society at large. So, yeah, she does kind of walk this tightrope where, you know, she never endorsed any uh, politician before Obama. Um, So she was skeptical of the Iraq war, but she uh, didn't really go all in. But it is worth noting that um, one of her shows that was kind of questioning the Iraq war, actually the Bush administration interrupted it on the east coast of the United States with a uh, special announcement. Because I think she did it. So after, like two days after Colin Powell did his speech to the UN saying, hey, please let us kill a million people uh, because there's powder in this jar or whatever he said, uh, she did a show that was skeptical of that. And the Bush administration called a hasty press conference that basically just re-outlined what Colin Powell said um, <laughs> the two days ago, and that cut into her show on uh, East Coast Markets. And oh, I think really? took like 20 <laughs> minutes out of it. But it is kind of cute that, uh, yeah, they were afraid they of her. They got back to her, and she's like, shock and awe! <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they were afraid of her ability to kind of mobilize white suburban moms against the Iraq war. And, um, excuse me. You know, maybe You're she could have done. Maybe she could have done more. Maybe she couldn't have. Um, but uh, essentially, she was not, in my opinion, an Iraq War proponent, um, and was one of the few people in media to actually use their platform to at least ask ske- skeptical questions rather than just be rah rah hooray, let's destroy the fucking world. We'll put a boot in your ass. <laughs> I mean, even Ellen DeGeneres is hugging that fucking criminal. Yeah. Um. But anyways, um, so I guess we should talk a little bit about um, kind of the hucksters she's enabled and more the idea of spiritual capitalism. And I think uh, the worst part about Oprah are these hucksters. Right. Because the, the three that I think are most prominent are Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, and Susie Orman. The Holy Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the new, the yeah. gods of neoliberalism. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They, both, they all each occupy like a different sort of sphere of cultural values for the u.s mm-hmm. there's like doc, dr phil is like psychological sort of slash spiritual right it's finance health and emotion that's yeah, right. that's what they're covering pretty much it's yeah. three factors every person needs to be balanced in to survive but there's so much misinformation 
because of people like this mm-hmm. that it's more confusing now ever than before. Dr. Phil was, I mean, say what you will about him, but he was such a good psychiatrist <laughs> that one of his patients was possibly, I don't know all the details, willing to have sex with him. <laughs> um, or at least did have sex with him. And, and that might have been how he lost his license five years before Oprah promoted him. I know we talk a lot of, you know, tomfoolery about people licking butts and all, but we do know this for a fact. Dr. Phil is part walrus. This is true. <laughs> Grubstakers exclusive. Yeah, they made a movie about it. That's right. They did. Just a random note. Planet not- Girth. <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, uh, Dr. Phil was never actually a psychiatrist. I didn't know we could go lower than O, magazine. <laughs> This is late stages. <laughs> I, I went into it. <laughs> late stage grub stakers. <laughs> right. Dr. Phil has a PhD in psychology. He is not actually and has never been a licensed psychiatrist, but he did fuck one of his psychology <laughs> patients. So you know how uh, Dr. Phil got into the Oprah system? At least he yeah, wasn't trading pills. I do actually. Pills. I do know this story. Um Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Well, so the story of how um, Dr. Phil got into the uh, Oprah canon is actually an interesting one that goes through um, kind of the weird uh, libel laws we have for food in this country. Basically, in 1998, Oprah did a show about mad cow beef. Um, where she said, I am never eating a hamburger again. And then suddenly, you know, because of the Oprah effect, like millions of dollars worth of um, cattle stock or whatever (laughs) went down the drain. So I believe some cattle um, producers, I I don't know their exact role, but basically some people involved in the beef industry sued Oprah because there is... I'm sure it was ground level farmers. (laughs) (laughs) Some mom and pop businesses. Yeah. Just uh, a couple cowboys struggling to get by <laughs> brought a multi-million dollar <laughs> lawsuit. Um, but so uh, uh, they sue Oprah for like, um, because I guess there's food libel laws in the U.S. This has been talked about other places. Um, they sued uh, Oprah for spreading misinformation about, you know, U.S. beef. And uh, she hired Dr. Phil, had a company at the time, uh, which, you know, offered psychological evaluation services or something. I just want the agriculture industry to know that I would never say anything bad about you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so she hired Dr. Phil. Uh, and don't look into it. She hired Dr. Phil during this lawsuit in 1998 to give her evaluations of the jury pool, basically, because they went to trial on this, and eventually the jury found Oprah not guilty on this thing so she didn't have to pay out this money another rich black woman gets off (laughs) scot-free dr phil's like i'd hit it wouldn't hit it might with a few beers yeah i was gonna say dr phil was plying the jury with alcohol and drugs before the trial (laughs) that's why he's the doctor (laughs) yeah that was a um that one looks emotionally vulnerable enough to move in Um, But so Dr. Phil gives, uh, you know, like instructions on like how to appeal to the jury's emotion or whatever quackery. And then because of that, he starts appearing on the Oprah show. And then I think in 2002 launches the Dr. Phil show um, where he would go on to give uh, people in recovery drugs and substances to make his show more interesting. And uh, wait, what? Yeah. You didn't hear that story? No, that was recent. Yeah. No, Dr. Phil was giving uh, uh, drugs to people in recovery. 
Oh, yeah. while they were like taping recovery shows. <laughs> uh, Planet <sorry>. Girth. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is a 2017 story from the uh, New York um, Daily News. Uh, former guests and uh, the Survivor China winner, Tom Todd Herzog, was battling alcohol addiction when he appeared on Dr. Phil's show in 2013. He told uh, the Boston Globe that he was flown there uh, for Los Angeles for the taping and was sober when he arrived. But then he found a bottle of vodka in his set's dressing room. <laughs> he said the show's staffer also gave him a Xanax to calm his nerves before his appearance. Wow. Uh, when he went on the show, he appeared drunk and looked like he was struggling to walk. Um, so, you know, it's definitely something where... How can you look like you're struggling to walk? If you're Isn't that Xanax, just you're struggling to walk? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it felt very easy for him. <laughs> He looks like he's struggling, but he's smiling and having a great time yeah. while he's doing it. <laughs> one woman from the show, again, this is from the same New York Daily News article. One woman claimed a show employee told her to buy heroin from a drug market for her niece who was trying to detox. Um, <laughs> the show has denied them the, these claims. Uh, Why would anyone make up these claims to sue the show? Like, <laughs> you no, know, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, they're lying about the things that we did. Like, it's like, why? Because well, they want to lie. Like, well, I don't get that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, again, the guy's a huckster and he's only a doctor because uh, he has a PhD. And uh, uh, so the company was called Courtroom Sciences, a oh, trial wow. consulting firm. That sounds like a sketch from uh, like a futuristic SNL. That's too good um but yeah so basically you have uh dr phil dr oz is another fucking huckster doctor um who has of course you know gotten in a lot of trouble for among other things uh promoting um green coffee extract calling it quote magic and quote a miracle and you know this is somebody who's appearing on tv and being referred to as a doctor right, and dressing right. well what's funny about coat. about him is he was like what was it like a surgeon and uh um he was a lecturer at Columbia for years, and so he was like denying a, the Armenian genocide. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was like a legit like doctor, but I think giving legitimate medical advice doesn't pay the bills. So he was just like, "Yeah, green coffee. I'm a doctor." But that's the thing about all of the people Oprah puts around her they're not technically doing wrong things well but well, he was he was definitely <laughs> doing wrong things well like, like okay it's so not wrong you can, to fuck your patient okay, obviously <laughs> no obviously obviously they're, they're wrong but like they tried spinning in a light where it's like i'm trying to help you out you know oh, yeah it's up to you to decide. Right, like, right, right, right. Well, that's and that's why that's like the holy trinity of like neoliberalism or whatever, because the idea is that the individual is entirely responsible for what happens to them, and a lot of the psychology and ideology behind the self-help industry is that idea that if you just change your attitude, good things will happen through the secret, or if you just follow Doctor Phil or Doctor Oz and you do the fucking stupid coffee extract, right. then you'll be fine. You don't need healthcare. You have green coffee extract. Yeah, right. Wait, uh, Sean, what did you say that this was? What kind of... Um, I, I think I would describe it as ideology. <laughs> and he's, so his fourth contribution is taking three minutes to find drops. <laughs> Don't hey, we have... 
Are you going to YouTube <laughs> to find the drop? Don't we have that drop saved? Wasn't this the, a discussion? Really the way too loud one? This was a discussion no, in like that the first the, episode uh, that we need the ZZAC ideology, ideology drop. There it is. It's very important here. Ideology. Here, now, here, do it once at a good... Uh, now. Ideology. All right. Perfect. <laughs> it's per- like we Actually, always... On the first episode, I found it on YouTube. I see. I mean, but oh, it turns oh, out it's not the first uh, result for ZZEC ideology. Well, it's you have like to type always, in ZZEC says it's ideology. It's like we always say. The most important thing in comedy is timing. <laughs> and Wait, what, what do you always say? The most important... Ideology. But so... The last of the Holy Trinity... Oh, yeah. yeah, so Susie Orman. Suze? Susie? Suze. Ideology. <laughs> Susie Ideology Orman uh, is a personal finance guru. Right. Uh, a la Dr. Phil and Oz, but just for fi- personal finance. Mm-hmm. And her, she, her thing is she finds artful ways to basically say save more than you spend. Right, right. Day right. after day. Yeah. And she got her start in 98, I think, on the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she written a handful of books and was like on CNBC and she was promoting a book. Yeah, she has a couple. Uh, right, she got a handful of books out. But like, what three or four books. What did she say in 09? Uh, uh, in 09. Yeah, yeah, Stephen had found this quote because basically she was uh, being, you know, a personal finance guru when the 2008 financial crisis happened. People had uh, the interesting idea to ask her what she thought about it. And uh, the quote that uh, she said was that millennials have it great right now i think the exact quote is uh the financial crisis is quote is the greatest thing that has ever happened to youth and that's that's from june 2009 right so this is like right before about seven to eleven million people are going to be evicted this is when eight hundred thousand people are losing their jobs per month right Right. the great uh, the greatest thing to ever happen to youth youth is uh, all these evictions she says to youth well you know the real tragedy is that they're not going to be able to appreciate it <laughs> I have the full quote. Yeah, read yeah, the quote. yeah. Um, the question, the questioner asked, "Do you think young people have it worse than any other generation with their higher unemployment rate, higher debt levels, and weak job market prospects for graduates?" And she says, "Right now, they have it so great, it's not even funny." <laughs> and the 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 questioner's like, "What really? What do you mean?" And she says, "The questioner's like, the, do you want to retract that?" Yeah, she keep, <laughs> no, I'm going to kind of give down. her an opportunity, yeah. but she doubles down. If the economy keep kept running the way it was you guys would have been broke for the rest of your life (laughs) and she goes on this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to youth it gave you a wake-up call that your parents were living in financial la-la land they were just trying to impress everybody with money they didn't have i love people which is like exactly sort of the protecting the goldman slash city group people right type propaganda and 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 how did the fire sector talking heads were putting out at the time right what was that about uh money they didn't have money they didn't uh they were trying to impress everyone like keeping up with the joneses and, running up credit card debt. Right. And how did she get her start in finance? <laughs> <laughs> she she did receive a small loan of 53000 from, from friends and well-wishers. <laughs> yeah, so she did a, a, the you know, 98 equivalent of a GoFundMe or you something. Know when you, uh, give me some well-wishers. You know when you throw a penny into a well for a wish? She took all that. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's she's down She there. just went from like <laughs> mall to mall. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, penny, penny saves, penny earned. Yeah, well... 
a penny stolen is also a penny hurt. <laughs> I do love the idea of a financial consultant saying people are living in financial la-la land while also telling people that the worst crisis since the Great Depression is a good thing for them. Right, <laughs> right. Did you know that crisis in Chinese also means opportunity? Well, I mean, this is her green tea extract. Yes, that, She literally right. did call the 2008 financial crisis an opportunity. And again, like, so this is the person Oprah has on to give financial advice to middle-class Americans. And the other part of that quote... I mean, it, if, if your job is giving struggling people financial advice, it's definitely an opportunity for her. Yeah, yeah Jesus and, that, and that's the thing. Saying it's an opportunity, although wrong, technically true for some people. Yep. Not the people she's talking to, though. True for <laughs> Oprah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. For sure. Buying, you know, houses number 678. Estates. Yeah. They don't call them houses at that point. <laughs> yeah, she, uh, Oprah has a $13 million ski lodge in Colorado, but her main property in California is, uh, I think, sold for $28 million. She also has homes in Hawaii, Tennessee, a few other places. You know, the thing when there's billionaires and you say she has a $13 million ski lodge, my first thought is like, yeah, she could get a bigger ski lodge. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she also has a Oprah has a forty-two million dollar private jet, and a podcast called Super Soul Sunday. Um, so we'll we'll try and get her on. <laughs> you guys want? Let's uh, do some cross promotion. Exactly. I'm gonna go on Super Soul Sunday, and Oprah's gonna be here next week <laughs> to respond to our allegations of her being a promoter of spiritual capitalism. We'll ask her how she pronounces her magazine name. It also, uh, just uh, before we move on from all the hucksters, um, though, I did want to say that Susie Orman quote, the other part of, you know, the keeping up with the Joneses, this is another part of uh, neoliberal ideology after the financial crisis, which is the idea that essentially consumers were responsible for what happened there. Uh, The the idea that, you know, people, they did go into debt, um, but the financial crisis was not caused by, you know, people the average homeowner borrowing too much, it was caused by uh, Wall Street securitizing trillions of dollars in just fraudulent and toxic assets and then reselling them all over the world. Um, So it it should be just kind of noted that in that quote, not only is she being uh, disgustingly ignorant and calling um, one of the most horrific economic events in the last hundred years a opportunity and a great thing, the greatest thing that has ever happened to youth, she's also reinforcing this false narrative of how the financial crisis actually happened. So she's a terrible fucking financial advisor, and uh, Oprah should never have put her on television. Sean, you know what I'm sensing right now? Negative thinking. (laughs) (laughs) You got to cut this out, Sean. You're not going to get to your billion with this type of thinking. (laughs) So I think uh, before the last thing, uh, Dr. Oz in 2012 did do an episode on reparative therapy for gays. Oh my God, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, and he did have some opponents on it of it on, but he also just like gave a platform to people who spread this idea that it's possible to you know do therapy and make gay things go away. Uh, and that's in 2012. So you know, <laughs> he's quite the guy. That's only ways that less than a year. Away from when illegally same-sex marriage. Yeah, I think so. Over. You think you could do therapy and get more gay? Because I kind of want to be more gay. It seems like there's there's just more opportunities. I think you could do therapy to be more gay. I yeah. think that would work. Ah, so gay yeah. marriage was legalized in 2015. So three years beforehand. Okay. 
Um, but yeah, he's, uh, you know, those three are uh, not particularly pleasant people, and they wouldn't exist without Oprah beaming them into middle America's homes. And, of course, uh, through her production company, in the case of Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil, taking a large cut of uh, their show's revenues and profits. I think brunch with the right people could be gay therapy. You know what I mean? (laughs) I think that, like, I feel like I'm trying to think, like... Oh, to go further? Yeah, to go deeper into being gay. I think that, like, get a couple of good... Good gay friends, and this isn't people who are homosexuals. This is just good friends who you want to be gay with, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, so like get some hot dudes to have lunch with. If if you had lunch, first of all, brunch, not lunch. If you had brunch with some hot dudes, uh-huh. and they were like, hey, let's all take our shirts off. You wouldn't take your shirt off? Come on. It's a whole bunch of guys having fun. Well, they're hot dudes. At brunch. Hey, they'd have but to, you're they'd with ha- the hot dudes, Andy. They would, they would have to... Uh, uh, verbally encourage me Andy, to build up my self-esteem to take off my shirt with these ribs. I'm pros. sensing negative thoughts. <laughs> I think I think when my girlfriend yells at me, it's actually the opposite of gay conversion therapy. <laughs> like, man, maybe I should just go suck a dick or something. That's so funny. Uh, Apathetically um, needing to suck a dick. <laughs> I, I guess I need to suck a dick. I don't know. <laughs> You know, I was at the Apple store, and the guy just was like, no, man, you fucked up. You put honey in your power switch. And I'm like, you know what? I, I guess I need to suck a dick. I just, <laughs> uh... um, but I Guys, guess... yes. if you're... Uh, just for the audience, if There's you want audience? something to think about, uh, and you have a readily available picture of Sean, just imagine him with a resigned look on his face, sucking a dick. Well, I'm not sure how I got into this one, but uh, I guess uh, I got to apply suction until he achieves orgasm. Uh, it like pauses and like the Duke's yeah. a hazard. Like voiceover is like, don't know how McCarthy's going to get out of this one. You're probably wondering. It's only polite if I finish him. We're at an hour. Uh, yeah, I, I guess we should have a brief discussion on just the idea of uh, spiritual capitalism and all that. Though, a um, uh, uh, funny thing was um, when Oprah in 2010, uh, when she uh, was kind of wrapping up her show, her show ended in 2011, but she planned a trip to Australia, and uh, a lot of people got mad at her because basically she she did a segment on her show where a uh, culture person of Australia broke down Australian slang and then said Australian people love to hang out at, quote, Mick, hip Mick cafes, which they call Mackers. Like, <laughs> just like a four, like 30 second ad spot for McDonald's in the middle of the show right. and described it as part of Australian culture. And, of course, uh, many uh, actual Australian coffee shops were a little angry at this idea (laughs) that Australian coffee consists of, you know, McCafes. (laughs) And, of course, her... um, her studio audience in the same episode were uh, given McDonald's products, <laughs> and uh, McDonald's partly uh, sponsored that that segment. So it's just kind of funny to me that it's like again by 2010 she's a fucking billionaire and right. she's still doing these McDonald's ads, which you know has its own history of horrific wage theft and labor abuse and everything else. But you know it just kind of actually in in Australia it's called uh, <laughs> a wage snatch. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a dingo ate my baby at Macca's because <laughs> of the wager snatch. Um, I'm but, getting a little uh, labor labor punch. That's not a labor. That's a noise. 
Did you know that uh, in Australia, the term for indigenous people is the past? Whoa. <laughs> um, I like it. Thanks, thanks. Uh, well, so anyways, I guess uh, uh, basically what we... So I think as a billionaire, Oprah definitely has the best uh, pulse of what real people can be, not yeah. are, can be. I think, unfortunately, power produces monsters, and Oprah, although very powerful, has also empowered people who are very stupid. Right. And the search for a truly decent billionaire continues. Yeah, I think she actually uh, hits very well on kind of the vein of individualism in America, where she, again, sells this self-help, confessional stuff. And everything that, you know, has kind of an inherent appeal to Americans in the idea that if you just work harder and do better, you can be successful. And things that happen in life are mostly your fault and not the result of larger systemic forces aligned against you. And uh, and I think she's well-meaning. And like we've definitely said, she's the most self-made billionaire we've talked about so far. Um, but I think she's bought into a lot of ideologies that uh, ideology that do not help people and uh, are ultimately Did that one with my foot <laughs> are ultimately peddled by you know parasites like Susie Orman, Doctor Oz, Doctor Phil, and uh, yeah. Well, I think it's most it's most evident in the secret, which right. she also yes, played which... up and went on Larry King to say that it was basically how she you know became the Oprah that we know today. And the secret makes claims that a positive thought is a hundred times more powerful than a negative thought <laughs> and it's and, and it claims that it's scientifically did, proven did you know that it takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile <laughs> yes i fucking did sean and uh and she, it, it also claims that the uh, the basic idea is that positive thoughts create energy like they try to make a scientific claim that positive thoughts create energy that attract positive happenings in your life. I think right. it's called string theory. <laughs> that's not, not far from the quality of string theory. Uh, I think that what they're trying to say isn't terrible, but I also think, hey, maybe fuck off a little bit, you know? Because it's like... Well, the the idea is based... I mean, they and they've made 300 million selling books and fucking DVDs about this, but the idea is just like if you're failing... It's because you have negative thoughts, and succeeding takes positive thoughts. And apologists will say, like, oh, it empowers people, but it also causes people to blame themselves for things that are out of their control. Right. And that's how you get into this sort of spiritual capitalism and ultra-individualism. Right. Well, and... and so, yeah, like just to talk a little bit about The Secret before we end here, uh, um, I think she endorsed it in her book club in, like, 2007 or something, um, but... You know, because of her, it really became a runaway bestseller. And I remember actually at the time I watched like 30 minutes of the secret documentary uh, <laughs> before I turned it off at being like complete horseshit. But basically, like they interviewed this woman and she was like, yeah, you know, I, I live in Los Angeles and it's so hard to find parking. And then like I started... One time I was like in my head positively imagining a parking spot being available. And as I pulled up, there was that parking spot. <laughs> and they used this as like evidence of anything at all. And, you know, at the time I just couldn't believe that people bought into this shit. But, you know, this idea of like positive reinforcement will actually create things is uh, it, it actually took off like fucking lightning. And again, it appeals to this individualism. It's, it's I think it, I, I think like the most 
like one of the overarching thing about having individual agency over like your own body, your own choices. Like one one of the sort of dialectical inversions, I guess, of that concept is that if you could just add up all of those people's individual senses of agency, don't you in fact have collective agency to change? the external barriers that she also acknowledges yeah. like from her tough upbringing where like basically every door was shut to her economically and you know luckily she got through but lots of people don't even if they try just as hard as she did and i would say the vast vast majority don't right um, and so like there i mean in she's sort of a pro, she's a prophet of capital but she's also kind of a prophet of like New, the neoliberal idea of just atomizing individuals so that they can feed into the profoundly alienating process of accumulating capital. Yeah. Can you rephrase that in terms of uh, quantum energy waves that are emitted from uh, your positive or negative thoughts? I think, this is I, also I, think I can, actually. She <laughs> wants us to achieve all go down to a lower ground energy state. <laughs> Did we? Sorry, I don't remember earlier in the episode. Did we? Wait, do... Sean. Stephen was describing the negatrons. <laughs> I need to know about the positrons. Can we get these Google Docs in my bliggly bop, please? There wasn't anything there. Really. What if? What if they expand on the secret and they're like, you know, our first go at it was non-relativistic. Yeah. Our first. Our first description. Our first description of the secret was only using special relativity. We yeah. didn't account for frame dragging. <laughs> Or, or <laughs> gravitational waves. Yeah, it's, it's the, uh, but now we've got the secret field theory. Yeah, that's they just they're working for a unified solved, field solved Einstein's, of secrets. I solved Einstein's secret uh, field equations. Yeah, we put we, uh, we put e equals m c squared on our vision board, and we think we're ready to grapple with the mathematics behind <laughs> all this now. Um, but sorry, did you do the quote already about uh, the secret and positive thoughts about oh, money or yeah. whatever? Because so I do want to get to that. There's this quote. So the um, Scientific American found kind of the most jarring quotes from the secret. And one of them is the only reason any person does not have enough money is because they are blocking money from coming to them with their thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> this is like... Oh man, that's you know what? It's almost as bad as Austrian school economics. <laughs> but this is, I think, a way that people with means justify the of pain of the world. Of these course, are sending out that magnetic There's... signal that is drawing the parallel back to you. She spends like over half her time, honestly, talking about like the pain and the suffering involved in pursuit of those personal ambitions. That she wants us to unleash, you know. It's capitalistic televangelism. That's really I mean, what it people is. People want it's... to hear that it really isn't just them, and she does have, you know, sort of kernels of that that truth mm-hmm. in what she says. Well, she gets to both be a poster child for the pain and trauma she truly lived, but then also gets away from the uh, fat cat billionaire look that she also is a part of. Which is, yeah. which is why she teeters that line. Uh, it's a f- very like a, interesting case. An economic recession or, or uh, semi-depression is like a mental one. I mean, it's, it's been shown at, at the same time that like it, it can really switch on and off parts of your biochemistry beyond just your social situation. I think, oh, I, I think that's part of why like something like The Secret with its obvious bullshit 
is able to uh, kind of reel people in because if you're really desperate, you're kind of looking for anything. Yeah, yeah. And so, and you anything know. can help when you're very desperate. Yeah. That's, so it's, it's so much a fair way to put it. Yeah. I just like the secret explanation for why billionaires exist, which is like these are just the two thousand people with the uh, least blockers on the money part of their brain. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're the brains that are most receptive to the money energy in the universe. <laughs> well, people don't know this, but I got. Uh, Quick let's, look at let's the, study their brains. <laughs> I got a find uh, the money receptors. <laughs> Short of that, let's just send electrical currents into different spots and see what it does. Yes. <laughs> well, people don't know this, but I got a sneak look at the secret version two. I got a vision board on my vision board. Next level stuff, what? guys. Pretty crazy. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, I guess like one last note, fun fact, uh, being from Seattle and being a big fan of Ezel's uh, fried chicken, which I recommend if you do enjoy chicken and if you are in Seattle, for a time, Oprah was having it flown out directly to her in California because she liked Ezel's fried chicken so much. So make sure to support local business Yeah. before it becomes an Amazon bookstore or whatever. <laughs> All right. So we're getting 400 for that spot, <laughs> <laughs> which is going to be pretty easy to divide up. Uh, I just I, I asked for a free combo meal next time I'm there. <laughs> Come on, bro! Eighty six hits. Oh god. <laughs> I was also so uh, at least so far I think we can all agree Oprah's the least evil billionaire. But I think the the so far the thesis is still intact that it is inherently not good. It's inherently evil to have a billion dollars. And although she is the least evil billionaire we've covered so far, she's also. Uh, the poorest billionaire. She's got the. She's got what two point seven or something. Yeah, like that? we were dealing with the you know the so big like, dogs. Right, if Oprah with a hundred billion dollars. Like that's a different Oprah. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like right now, like the incidents of racism against her in European boutique <laughs> high end fashion stores is like laughable. You laugh at like like fifty billion dollar Oprah or like a race. race Someone's racist towards Oprah, and she's got like a hundred billion dollars. She buys the country. You know what I mean? Like that's some next level shit. Well, you know she's not old, really, and she went from eight hundred million to two point seven billion in. Trying to say you trying to hit that, Stephen? You trying to say that she ain't old? She ain't no cougar. You trying to get that dick wet? (laughs) She's got plenty of time to become (laughs) a multi tens of billion billionaire. Mrs. Stephen Jeffries. That's right. That's right. <laughs> next uh, next week we're gonna come back and be like, uh, update. Stephen got that dick wet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's everything. Sean, how you feeling? Uh, I feel like Stephen's gonna teach Oprah about modern <laughs> monetary theory. <laughs> like in between, but eating. energy is conserved, right? Yeah. So you can't just create. As long as you have positive thoughts, that's the only way to make sure that it happens. In between eating her out, he's like, "Well, you know, the government really is the monopoly controller of the currency." <laughs> I love bread. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anything else? Uh, my name. Grainiest, nuttiest bread. That's One. what. That's what she calls Stephen. The grainiest, nuttiest bread. <laughs> Uh, and with that, my name's Yogi Pollywall. I'm Sean McCarthy. Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. All right, thanks for listening, guys. Slice of bread. <laughs>